Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. My guest today is Whitley Strieber, a man who has written probably more than a dozen books, all associated with his ostensible contact with beings whom he refers to as the visitors. I'm talking about communion, transformation, breakthrough beyond communion, the secret school, the key, hybrids, and most recently, a new world. In today's interview, we're going to explore the potential of future communication between these visitors and the human race. Once again, this is an internet interview. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Whitley. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Well, it's good to be back, Jeffrey. It's been, I guess, over a year since uh, we've spoken. I hope you're safe and well. Well, I am. I'm bored, isolated. Uh, I live like everybody does right now uh, in the, through a screen. I've been looking over uh, your body of work. I see that you've written, it must be over a dozen books now, dealing with not only your own encounters uh, with the visitors, as you call them, but uh, also uh, quite a bit of uh, reporting on uh, research by other scholars who have been looking into it. You, you've been I have to say, pushing this subject now for decades. And uh, I notice at the end of your recent book, A New World, you refer to yourself as conjuring, conjuring up maybe a new world that, that we can live in, uh, which makes me think that perhaps you're not just a contactee, but maybe even a bit of a magician. <laughs> well, if you've got me. Yes, uh, I am att attempting to to work of magic, but it needs to it needs a more more critical mass. There have to be more people involved so far for that really to unfold on a large scale. But it is quietly unfolding behind the scenes where nobody can see uh, in in my certain lives for sure. What it consists of is helping others to open themselves in such a way that they can be seen and related to by something that is moving in a through reality in a very different way and that's essentially what the what the conjuring is about and uh placing people in a in a situation where they can do this and um uh, uh, it, it, but in making it happen on a larger scale, it, there's a critical mass where if it, if it had happened to a certain number of people, it would probably eventually begin to happen with everybody. You know, it was very hard to ride a bicycle when they were first invented. It's quite easy now. It only takes a few minutes to learn. And uh, that, the, the same principle applies here. 
at the moment when I think of a parallel to perhaps what you've been doing, and it's it's not the best parallel, but I'm thinking of uh, the Nobel laureate poet W.B. Yeats, uh, who was a member of the Order of the Golden Dawn. And I think, uh, in fact, I did an interview with the scholar Gary Lockman, a scholar of esoteric history, in which he describes Yeats as deliberately trying to conjure up through his writing and his, his poetry in particular, a an awareness of the ancient Irish fairy faith and uh, the ancient Irish contact with with many beings of, of the supersensible world. Uh, it seems uh, in a way that you're continuing in that tradition. I went out to a hazel wood because a fire was in my head and cut and peeled a hazel wand and hooked a berry to a thread and went white moths were on the wing and moth-like stars were flickering out I dropped the berry in a stream and caught a little silver trout. When I laid it on the floor and went to blow the fire aflame, something rustled on the floor and someone called me by my name. It had become a glimmering girl with apple blossom in her hair who called me by my name and vanished through the brightening air. Though I am old with wandering in hollow lands and hilly lands, I will find where she has gone, and kiss her lips and take her hands, and walk in long, dappled grass till time and times are done, and pluck the silver apples of the moon, the golden apples of the sun. That's the song of wandering Angus, when Annie was dying in January of 2015. She knew I did not at that time. She didn't actually pass until August. She began telling me that I must memorize that poem. And when I did, finally, after she died, the white moth became the central figure of our relationship and has been ever since. Her favorite story of mine, written many years ago, is called The White Moths, and it is about a woman discovering that she has died. Uh, Yeats's journey is a very profound part of my own life, because he left the magic of his journey in his poetry. He was a successful magician and conjurer. Sometimes you describe yourself, in, in spite of your enormous output, as, as not having succeeded, that uh, uh, you feel, last time we spoke over a year ago, that, that the world had basically rejected you. Well, it has. The world has rejected me. But that doesn't mean necessarily that I'm, I am not succeeding on a personal level, which is very much the case I am. And there are as a tiny coterie of people who know that and who participate with me in this journey. Um, but uh, it, the world at large, well, for example, uh, I heard a fellow called uh, Dennis McKenna um, on Joe Rogan's show uh, he, he, and talking about me. 
which is always an unpleasant thing to hear. I don't listen to Joe Rogan's show generally, but someone sent me a tape of it. And there he was saying, oh, you know, Rogan was saying, well, I wouldn't have Whitley Strieber on my show because he's too strange. And Dennis McKenna was saying, oh, yes, well, that's true. I was with him at a conference, and he has certainly got an element of strangeness about him. And uh, But you should, if you have him on, you should have him on with that professor, Jeff, Jeffrey Kripal, who's his sort of uh, rights with him, I think. But that, that's, this is the, that's the general gist of it. But mostly, mostly, it is, I'm totally and completely ignored. It's as if I didn't exist. Now, my books aren't, well, like, for example, over, uh, nearly a year since its, since its publication, A New World has been reviewed exactly once off somewhere outside of Amazon by a reviewer with a, a, an ability to write. Uh, and that appeared in the San Antonio Express News. Uh, it won't, I would be surprised if anything appeared anywhere else because the assumption is that anyone who advocates what I advocate, that the soul is real and that there are many entities in consciousness is simply going to be ignored because soul blindness is not something that it's not an afflict only an affliction it is also an addiction we are addicted to not wanting to feel responsible for our lives well, that's a, a very profound thought, and maybe uh, one of the reason that reasons that people have such difficulty is because you're challenging them to go so deep. Yeah, I am challenging them to look at themselves in places that they don't want to look. But you know, why not look now? You're going to look later for sure. And uh, I have encountered many souls in the other level who end up doing this after after they have died and there's no way to repair the situation then you know they have to they they, they can't you know you just you're left then with what you brought you carry your basket into the other world and once you leave this one you can't take anything out of it or put anything back in it again it seems to me, uh, Whitley, that we have a few things in common in that regard. I'm a parapsychologist, as I think you know, and I have, you know, the only doctoral diploma ever issued by an accredited university that says parapsychology. So here I am. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I have a YouTube following. There are 75,000 subscribers to this channel. And I know that you also have a big following of, of people who don't care about the uh, larger public perception. They're, they see you for who you are. That's right. And that's why we're both here. Because there are people and more and more every day like that. And they're hungry people. They know that there is something missing, that this is a culture that is a, it is a culture of starvation. One of the visitors years ago, I think it was the old lady who's on the cover of communion, whom I have seen a few times since, and I portrayed her very poorly. 
uh, but she's fortunately not vain, so she, she's been amused by it. But in any case, she wants, in some context that I can't, I can't really recall clearly, she said, "You are very poor to up uh, to me, meaning us, the human." The human species is very poor. And she meant not in physical context, because our physical world is a very rich one. But spiritually, we are impoverished. We have been uh, cursed by belief. And we went through in the West a thousand years of a religious dictatorship. And there's still a religious dictatorship in many parts of the world in different religions. And but when we escaped from the religious dictatorship, we had the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment also turned off lights. It turned off the light of the soul while turning on the light of science. But both lights are quite real, and we need to have them both on at the same time. A car with one headlight's not going to be a very safe one to drive, and it's not. So here we are. Here we are. One of the really uh, striking things I found in your recent book was the idea that the visitors uh, come. They're very interested in us because of uh, one of our most uh, unique and perhaps to them endearing qualities, which is we can't see the future like they do. Yes, we are in the time stream. We have that grace. And, you know, everyone is always saying, oh, please ask them what's going to happen next. And, you know, they're not going to tell us that because the, our whole purpose, we're, we have, we have come into these very sacred receptacles that are known as bodies in order to experience time and to be surprised by the future. So, you know, uh, people who are with me when the visitors show up are often very unexpectedly frightened in ways that they didn't know they could be. It, it's devastating experience. And the reason is that their entire being, parts of their being they're not directly in touch with, are challenged by this presence. And because this is a presence that has a larger scale in terms of its knowledge of, 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 of time. And it's we're very much like fish swimming in a time in the time stream. And the visitors are on the shore looking down into the stream and it's a beautiful place, and they can't enjoy it unless they share with us in some way. They have to be very careful about that, though, because they have to come down into the stream of time and join the fish in his swimming, not pull the fish out of the stream of time, because then if he does that, they do that. The fish has suddenly has a lot of trouble. So... You have to you have to learn uh, how to balance this so that when they they do come to enjoy sharing with you, you're ready to share and you're not 
uh, going to, to to lose your balance and end up uh, end up uh, uh, slipping out of the time stream in ways that you're not meant to. Took me a long time to 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 be comfortable with that, but I'm quite comfortable with it now. They show up in my life all the time, and I have a you know it's a really lovely time, frankly. It, it used to be so hard and they were so scary, but now it's it's very gentle and 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 lovely. And they have a lot of fun with it. They want more people that they can do this with. You can be sure. I'm not the only one. There's thousands of people they do it with. I, I'm sure many I don't even know. I'm under that impression as well, just from the uh, feedback I receive from the various broadcasts. Uh, we do, and I know you've received what over a hundred thousand letters from people. Oh yeah, those are all people, and on my website, it's on unknown country. It's full of people who are doing this all the time. They do that. They are in contact. You know, people are always saying, "Well, when is contact going to happen?" And I think to myself, "Really? That happened. <laughs> that may have happened before we even existed. We've been in contact always." <laughs> But, but but something did change in the late 40s uh, when whoever is here or, or part of this saw that we were in danger of destroying ourselves or perhaps saw that we would and probably saw it on the horizon. Uh, they suddenly ramped up their presence dramatically. And that's what all of the explosion of UFOs and the then the close encounter experience and all those hundred thousand letters all that's about and it was more than a hundred thousand and used to know the correct number but it was it was really a lot and it would seem to me at the same time uh there are changes going on within humanity itself for example near-death experiences have come to the forefront of our awareness yeah, I wrote about that in Afterlife Revolution. And, you know, the, the actual truth is the shamanic journey starts with an initiation. And it's often an initiation that takes you to and just beyond the edge of death. In fact, in many cultures, it can be quite dangerous because it, if it's going to be real, you really do have to challenge death. However, something has happened and that is that people are dying and being brought back to life by medicine like Anne was. And many of those people have the initiatory experience during the process of dying and being brought back to life by science. So science is the, the great initiator now. Anne was initiated into the afterlife and into the reality of greater life by her near, by her NDE, which would never have happened if she did not have medical science. She had a choice. And at one point during the NDE, a voice said to her, you can go back or you can come with us. And she decided to come back. And she did. It had another 10 years and she so our son married and two of her grandchildren born, and she was right to come back. Well, I uh, know from having interviewed uh, Pim von Lommel in, in the Netherlands that there are hundreds of instances of people going through cardiac arrest in the hospital under medical supervision and then being revived after having been 
for all intents and purposes, clinically dead. Right. And, and those who remember a near-death experience have had an initiation. They've had an initiation. That's what an initiation was in the past. Uh, in the, in, in, in the, in ancient Greece, we don't know too much about the initiatory experience, except we do know that people died during that experience from time to time. And certainly the shamanic initiations that we know in uh, most of the world now in indigenous populations can be, they are a real serious challenge to death. You have to face death. And so science is turning a lot of people into spiritual masters <laughs> while itself believing that their souls don't exist. I find that wonderfully amusing and very typical of this humorous universe. It has a fabulous sense of humor. There's no question about that. Writers such as yourself, even though I know you're, you've are you been a best-selling author, you uh, consider yourself with good justification to be on the margins of society. I feel the same way in some regards. But you also write about your visit to the uh, Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, uh, where they held a uh, conference related to uh, contact. And I'm under the impression that amongst indigenous people who are also marginalized, this idea of having a, a kind of natural communion with uh, otherworldly beings uh, seems to be uh, almost second nature to them around the world. Well, it is in a lot of cultures and uh, 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 and the visitors the visitors like the Lakota Sioux. I know that from experience. Uh, I had on that reservation the single most extraordinary experience of my life. And I've had a life full of extraordinary experiences. I have been blessed beyond blessing with that, with this. But what happened on that reservation was, oh, I guess I noticed it about six hours after I arrived. I was riding in a car and I happened to close my eyes because being it's a big place and I was being driven somewhere and it was about a half hour drive or so. And to my ex astonishment, I when I closed my eyes, I didn't just see the dark. I saw another world. It wasn't. It was a version of this world like a slightly different version of it in incredible detail. For example, in this world, the car was going down a, a very nicely graded road. In the other world, we were also on a road, but it was an older road and not graded and went up and down the hillsides. And when the car I was in would go on the graded road and my eyes were closed and I was watching us on the other road and the other road would go down with the contour of the earth. It felt like the car was flying. It was just extraordinary. And it went on and on and on for days. Every time I closed my eyes, I could see this other world. I could, I could sit go in, in, in any corner and close my eyes and look down and I would see grasses and flowers and everything just as 
just as they were. But when I opened my eyes, they would all be slightly different. In other words, there were two worlds imposed, superimposed on each other. I had the honor of being taken to a family, very powerful family ceremony. And at the ceremony, we were in a kind of clearing. And when my eyes were open, there was a lot, it was very loud, a lot of chanting. And uh, when I closed my eyes, the chanting moved off to the right and, 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 in, and was in the distance. I didn't hear the chanting in front of me anymore. And there was a, a similar ceremony going on in the other world, but it was not in that exact same place. And it went on like that. It was just marvelous. I, I, I really, it changed my life. I never saw anything so precise and so elaborate. And it was really, it was, oh, and another thing that happened, we went to the Wounded Knee Memorial and I was in, I was in a very intense, very physical state because, you know, we, we always think of consciousness as being, oh, that's part of my mind. No, your mind's part of consciousness. And to find consciousness, you need to expand your awareness into your whole body, to expand your attention into the sensation of your body. And then it will grow. And really, your, your attention, your sensation, your consciousness will grow. Uh, so I was had been doing this now for days, and we went to the Wounded Knee Memorial, and this one man kept walking up to me. I was looking down at the graves and honoring in my heart the, the, the fallen, and he kept walking up to me and walking back and walking up to me. <laughs> I thought, what's he doing? And he said, finally said, Mr. Streber, um, I can see the bones in the graves under the soil when I stand next to you, but not when I don't. And I thought, well, how extraordinary, because I can't see them. And I thought to myself then, how much we filter out. I was probably filtering that out right then. I probably, we could probably, any of us have seen them, but we, we are, we are hiding behind a wall of beliefs and assumptions. I was going to get to that earlier that my, one of the first things my wife said after she passed away was the human species is too young to have beliefs. What we need are good questions. And boy, that resonated with me. And I've been trying to give up my beliefs ever since and replace them with questions. And it's like growing wings. I can tell you that for sure. Well, that, that particular experience suggests that we haven't begun to catalog all the, the different kinds of cities or powers or gifts of the spirit or psychic uh, abilities that people can have. We have uh, a, a very tiny list, actually, of, of what might be possible. Oh, yeah. You know, when I was a boy, uh, I used to, I had a, quite a few incidents of going up in the air physically. Uh, I don't remember them very directly. I remember a couple of them. 
but one of them was when I was I was playing in the front yard. I must have been about three because I had a maroon toy sports car, and I remember that vividly. And I all of a sudden I saw the sky, and uh, then the I was involved with some. There were wires, three wires that went up the the yard to the from the street to the house. And I was involved in these wires, and I remember looking down. I thought I was looking up, and then I saw my mother's face in the kitchen window, very, very uh, frowning up at me. And I thought I was in trouble, and then uh, the gardener came with a big ladder and got me down. There's a 30-foot gap between the ground and those wires at that point. No one ever knew how in the world I had gotten up there. But I used to get into so many peculiar situations, nobody ever thought twice about it. My mother told the story many times of when Whitley ended up in the wires. So, and there were a couple of other times when I, that later, when I was nine or ten, when I would rise up out of the front yard and it was it was a physical thing. It wasn't uh, an out-of-body experience. And it was, oh, it's just lovely. Remembering it is such a pleasure. And, and you know, we have people like Padre Pio, who, uh, during the, when his town was about to be bombed, the bombers all saw him standing in the air in front of, in front of them. And they didn't bomb the town because, you know, the bombardiers were concerned, concerned that maybe... That would be a bad idea. And uh, we don't know who we are and what we are. And I find that so fun. It's so exciting to, to not live in the, in the dark place of, oh, I'm just this and nothing more. But in the light place of, I don't know what I am and I can explore. And maybe I'll go down a lot of blind alleys, but so what? At least I'm going to have the journey. Your experience on the Pine Ridge uh, Reservation, if if I recall correctly, it seemed to suggest to you the possibility that we are intersecting a, a kind of parallel universe. A mirror universe. Well, you know, there's in in a new world. I outline a lot of evidence, scientific evidence, that this is true. And recently there has been more suggesting that it absolutely, that it must be true, that there is a mirror universe here. Uh, there, in the New Scientist, just recently there was an article about this. And I have a, I don't want to discuss it extensively because I haven't had a chance to actually read the papers, but it seems as if there was a kind of there was a discovery of a uh, of a particle, basically, that uh, a high energy neutrino that came up out of the ground. Now, what makes this so odd is you can you have two types of neutrinos, high energy and low energy, and uh, if it comes up out of the ground, it has to be a low energy neutrino because high-energy neutrinos can't pass through the planet. Low-energy neutrinos can pass through it like it wasn't there, but not high-energy neutrinos. So that means for that neutrino 
the planet didn't exist. The neutrino wasn't in this universe. It was in another universe. It almost has to be true. And there, there, there are, this happened in 2016, but the significance wasn't noticed until just recently. And it, it's a very exciting discovery. And there's also another experiment going on with neutrinos that uses a very thick block of lead that's capable of stopping them. And if any come through it, it means they're, they're not seeing the lead. They're passing through it because it's not there in the universe they're in. So exciting. <laughs> I love this sort of thing. Yeah, neutrinos are uh, really quite fascinating. Uh, also, your your story about driving in the car and the road was slightly different when you closed your eyes. It was more than slightly uh, different. It was an old carriage road in the other world, but a brand new fancy yeah. road in this one. You you probably recall in uh, Robert Monroe's books of Journeys Out of the Body, he had several repeated journeys to another world in which people had automobiles, but they were wider than they were long. Ha! I, I wonder about that. that. That seems so improbable, but who knows? Who knows? Yeah. There might be many. You know, I think that the many worlds theory... Uh, is is in, in in a lot of trouble, and I'm, I don't think the theory is going to survive uh, because of uh, some uh, uh, discoveries in other areas of physics that are beginning to suggest that there is no such thing. I don't want to get. I love physics, and I'm very involved, and I think about physics a lot. But most people don't, and I, a will not be spouting off any equations. B B I won't talk about it much. Uh, but uh, there is something called the collapse of the wave function, and mm -hmm. it is becoming clear. That, and, and when the when the wave function collapses, every point the theory is every point that could it could have collapsed to becomes a reality, and that's the multiverse constantly flowing out of all of these possibilities. But yeah. it seems clear that the wave function actually never collapses. And therefore, that reality does not work the way the multiverse and the Copenhagen interpretation suggest. So we shall see uh, what comes of this. Um, now, the beauty of this is that we there's a the, the double slit experiment. We can actually see the collapse of the wave function. So if it's not happening, what are we seeing? <laughs> I love that. Well, you point out in um, A New World that the, the visitors seem to have this power to actually manipulate molecules and atoms and, and particles. Yes. Well, years and years ago, they said to one of the close encounter witnesses, uh, something I thought was terribly important. They said, we rearrange atoms. Now, yeah. we talked about Yates, and we started talking about magic by talking about magic. Rearranging atoms is magic. Uh, now, it's not easy because there's an enormous amount of energy involved in keeping atoms where they are. 
But if you could rearrange them, you could make anything into anything else. And you, you could do essentially anything. And so the visitors have an ability like that. And then, of course, here we are. They have an ability. We have an adventure. And where do they want to be? The hell with the ability. They want the adventure. So here they are. That's what contact's all about, is sharing, oddly enough, sharing our innocence with them. And, and yet, from all accounts, it, w it would seem that uh, we're very different than them. It's amazing that there can be any communication at all. Well, I go into that very deeply in the book, in, in A New World, because it's terribly important to understand that well, like last night, I'm, as we're talking today, there's a, there's a place, I'm not going to go into any, any details about exactly what is going on in this apartment, but suffice to say, there are a lot of things that go on in here that would perhaps be considered unusual. Uh, one of them is there are these uh, drop-downs of sort of hieroglyphics that I never consciously understand. And there was one last night that was orange, sort of an orange pink in color and very rounded and dropped down and was present for a while. And I wondered at the time what it was. It was a communication of some sort. And now I know because of the fact that when we started to talk about physics, it became more like a, like something like ideas that were coming into my body and, and, and mind. So that's, that's a type of communication that we don't have. Another type is the way they communicate using the natural world. For example, they are often seen as owls. And if you look at the life of the owl, it's very much like the life of the little gray uh, uh, fairy, uh, uh, alien, or whatever they are. I don't know which, which to say. In any case, uh, the owl has wonderful hearing, and he can sit in a tree and listen to the little stoat scuttling safely around in his burrow in the night, and then swoop down rip the ground open and pull him up out of his burrow and fly off into the sky with him. Now, that's ascension. All right. And the gray can come down into our little burrow in the dead of the night and sweep us up into the sky, too. That happened to me and it happens to millions of people. And what is that about? Well, either you don't remember it at all you remember it and are frozen in fear, or you remember it and you say to yourself, hot damn, what happened to me? That was incredible. And you start to run after it. And an awful lot of people are starting to run after it. They see those of us who started running after it a while ago, and we're still here. Nothing's eaten us, unlike the poor little stoat. We got sent, we got taken back. But you see the way the communication works. And you see also, they are teachers to their core. 
And that's why the owl, we, we see the similar, similarity with the owl, and we see that the owl devours its prey. And then we have to think, am I prey to? What am I to do with this? That's part of the communication. That's the part where you must look into yourself and find your own truth and your own courage and your own willingness to proceed, even though you don't know. You know, I had a wonderful teacher years ago, a a writer called Pamela Travers. Uh, She was a Gurdjieff in the Gurdjieff Foundation. And she used to say that to sit in the lap of the goddess means to be unsure. And that is where we are with the visitors. Their primary manifestation, incidentally, is female. I think for a good reason. Now, I know one thing about owls, which is that uh, they regurgitate the prey. I've gone on uh, various hiking expeditions, and you can see a little clump of fur and and bone. And after they've sort of sucked all the juices out of and the meat out of the mouse, they, they regurgitate the rest. After they have tasted of our experience of life, after they have tasted all of the rich experience that is in second body, in that is stored in us, they regurgitate the physical body and send it right back to your bedroom. And um, most of the time. And do they take or not? Well, I would say not. I think they... I think they they sample and participate, but if they take, then why do I have such a rich, such a rich, my second body is rich with memory. It's rich with memory. So they, they didn't take any of the good stuff, that's for sure. You know, another paradox strikes me is that while on on the one hand, they seem so alien and so very different, on the other hand, you've had encounters uh, with beings who seem perfectly human and and could converse with you uh, in normal human language. I have indeed. Um, That's a complicated area because of the fact that it bleeds off into... Into um, things that uh, I'm not ready to discuss. However, I had um, a, a period of contact with a a being that was that was quite disturbed, young, what looked like a boy, and. Um, it, this ended in 1997 and started in 1995, I believe. I, I can't be sure of the date, so I don't want to be someone to be looking in. Oh, he said 97 then. Now he's saying 96, or therefore the whole thing is a complete fake. You have to be more realistic. In any case, it was in the late 90s that this all happened. 
he was short, and I, when I first encountered him, I thought that he was a uh, child smoking a cigarette in the in the woods behind my house, and I wanted to warn him about the dryness, and he was very disturbed. He could clearly read minds. There's no question in my mind about that, and he was living in a kind of agony. I think his experience of, of, of life was like that of a schizophrenic whose mind is full of voices that he can't turn off. And the smoking was because it was exactly like the smoking of a schizophrenic where nicotine will, will, will damp down the, 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 the voices to a degree. And, but he, he followed us to Texas when we lost our cabin and moved to, to Texas. And, um, he stayed with us for a little while standing outside the, the uh, condo we were living in, and I drove him off with a, with a, um, an automatic light that would light up in the little corner he was hiding in. And I've always regretted that. I've always regretted it. More recently, I, I'm waked up or I wake myself up at around three every morning to do a meditation. And recently I did not wake up and I heard a child's voice from the living room call out, Daddy, have you not forgotten me? And I then got up and went and did the meditation. I've had other experiences of people who were involved in this as well. But there are people involved, and not only that, there are some people involved in this who don't know it in this life, but do know it in another level of reality. And I'm sure I'm one of them. I, I'm, I know of some other people who I have seen and in, interacted with in other reality, in, in, in the visitor context, who don't know it in this context. And one in particular um, was... I, w I had a very powerful sexual experience with a visitor that was conducted at the cabin in, a, I think, about 1989, and it was in a room in, a, in the guest room, by, and uh, there was a large number of people there, uh, one of whom I recognized because I had known him for a long time. He was an intelligence officer I'd known for years. Uh, military man and uh, afterwards I thought how odd that he would be watching this spect spectacle 30 years passed I met a man from Romania who said to me he had had one experience in his life and it was a total blackness except for one thing he remembered them getting to underline him to underline a name in a detective novel he was reading. And he said, I don't know why, but that's the only evidence I have that it even happened. And I said, what's the name? It was the name of the intelligence officer who had been there 30 years before. It suggests that the reality in, in which we live has dreamlike qualities. We, we think of it as being very mechanical and physical, but uh, it seems as if 
there are elements of our reality that uh, are better expressed as, as dreamlike or even like a poem. You know, I think that it is terribly important not to think of this whole experience so much in the linear and formalistic language of correspondence that we have evolved, but rather in the much more ambiguous language of poetry, which is a bigger language. In, in uh, A New World, I talk about the, the use of imagery, of imagistic writing and, and hieroglyphs and how writing, the visitors' ways of communicating are very similar to especially Egyptian hieroglyphs, which used uh, natural objects and their meanings and their significance to express parts of words. And so you had a an incredibly complex and rich language that was operating on many different levels at the same time. It was operating on a, on a mundane level of communicating ideas and specific information and so forth. But at the same time, it was punning about the natural world in ways that our languages can't anymore because we have stripped that level off. But the visitors haven't. That's how they, that's still how they communicate. That's why when I, when, when I, uh, they communicate with me, it's in these hieroglyphics. And I have to tell you, I don't consciously know what the hieroglyphics mean, but I just, what I do is I just try to, when I see that particular thing appear, I try to just empty my mind as best I can and take my attention away from my thoughts and put it on my body and just let the information, whatever it happens to be, come in if it's going to. I don't question it or, any, or anything. And often enough, later on, it turns out that it becomes clear and it's useful. You refer several times uh, in your new book to a previous book called The Key and a figure called The Master of the Key who appeared mysteriously uh, in a hotel room where you were staying after midnight and spent a half hour with you involved in a very deep scientific discussion and, and then left. And uh, you imply that you think this person was also a visitor, not of this world. I don't think he was of this world. I don't see how he could have been. Uh, he, a lot of what he said reflected some very, very deep Masonic lore. And I thought perhaps he was a Templar because there's a, there are as a Templar Mason, there are Templar Masons in Canada. But I got involved with one of their leaders and talked about him extensively. And I don't think that this man was connected with them. Uh, the whole thing started when I had had room service and it was the last night of the last author tour I would ever be invited to do. Of course, I didn't know that at the time. And the someone knocked on the door and I was lying. I felt like I was just dozing. What I didn't realize was it was now two o'clock in the morning. I thought it was about 1030 or 11 maybe. And um, 
I got up and I, I saw that woke up and sat up and saw that the tray was still on the desk where I'd eaten my dinner. And so I thought, oh, it's the room service guy. And I opened the door and this man came in. He was a very, he wasn't a particularly tall or um, he looked, he was rather slight, dressed in gray and had a very mild, very sweet face, but he was still there. And that was a problem because at the, <laughs> at that hour, there is no such thing as a fan whom you are going to be pleased to have a conversation with in your hotel room unexpectedly. That fan will be trouble, or not a fan at all, more likely. But he proceeded to turn around and start talking. He stood against the window, and he t said the most extraordinary thing. He said that the we are chained to the ground because of the Holocaust, because the child who would have understood the secret of gravity, died in the womb of his mother in, a, in the gas chambers, and therefore this species is trapped on Earth. And boy, when that book came out, I got a lot of death threats from right-wing fanatics and, uh, and Hitler lovers, because, you know, they didn't want to hear that their little escapade in the concentration camps had had placed mankind in the situation that we are in now where our population is growing out of control and we can't leave. Um, there is no way. I know people who are working on gravity very hard and trying to understand it. You can't understand gravity unless you understand first the yearning that is the and the, that is the basis of reality because the reality comes out of it when you when you assume that there is no consciousness that it's all natural and you look for methodologies and systematic approaches you you don't look in the right place and so they get nowhere with gravity we need to learn how to find the secret of gravity or we're going to have trouble here and we lost our chance because that happened that's not the primary message of the key there's a lot of scientific information in the key that has mostly actually come true in fact all of it has over time but there was something in the key it's one of the things that he said that has been so useful to me because we always need to try to understand, where am I in my life? What am I doing? Am I, am I living a, an examined life and a good life? And how do I examine my life? They have this concept of sin, which, of course, as a growing up Catholic, I was absolutely fascinated with it and mystified by it, too, because I didn't know quite what it was. And yet we all do know what it is. So I asked him the question, what is sin? And he answered immediately with the best answer I've ever heard. He said, sin is denial of the right to thrive. And when you think of that, suddenly your whole life comes into focus and you understand yourself and where you are and where you need to be and need to go. So that was the master of the key. You assume that this 
is, is an, uh, a non-earthly being uh, it, rather than just a very wise man. Well, he, you know, he, he gave me a drink called the milk of Nepenthe that the Greeks called the milk of Nepenthe, which is actually opium liquid in, in mixed in alcohol. I figured out what it was eventually, and, and there's a little uh, majorum, I believe, or something in it to kind of cut the bitterness. It's very bitter, though. Uh, and I've had it twice. I had it once when the visitors from the visitors and then once from him. And what it does is it simply puts you to sleep. It's nothing, it's nothing miraculous or nothing. It's not a space drink. Uh, uh, and then you wake up in the morning and you... You may not may or may not remember what happened, but in any case, um, he must have been a physical person, or he wouldn't have needed to do that. He would have simply disappeared. But he left via the door, and entered via the door with a knock. Now, does that mean he lived somewhere in Canada? Possibly. Perhaps I mean, he was just a very wise man. But if he was a wise man who is living in this time stream in this reality now, then he's truly extraordinary, and I wish I could find him again, but I haven't been able to. Uh, you know, another comment that you made uh, in in your book that struck me relates to the enormous literature that's coming out of people who believe that they are in contact with alien beings through remote viewing or through channeling. And I, I think your inclination was to dismiss it simply because we can't know the extent to which imagination was involved in uh, the production of this literature. Well, yeah, the channel literature is a, is, a, is a very big problem because if you resonate with something channeled, then, you know, you should go with it. But you can't prove it. There's no way to. It's... It, it is uh, unanchorable, and, and that's why I have so much trouble with it. And uh, I, I'm not a good channeler because I just don't. I don't. I, I want to be able to anchor my my thoughts and my beliefs and my ex, in in the process of my exploration. That's why I'm so careful that whenever possible. I add witnesses in my work. And I think my, in terms of paranormal experiences, my books are among the most extensively documented in terms of there being additional witnesses, named witnesses of any. I, I'm very careful about that. But to me, channeling is, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's un, um, it, you can't pin it down. You, you can't know. Every once in a while, a psychic will come along who's very powerful. And I, I've known some who, but who proved their power by feats of knowledge, feats of knowing that were beyond belief. And then when they channel, you think to yourself, well, maybe there's something there, because at least you do know there's a real power in this person. Of course, I wrote a book uh, called The PK Man about uh, just such a person who, uh, <laughs> wonderful it, it, seems, it seems as if 
when you when when there are these anchors or these hooks uh, where you can attach uh, something tangible to the uh, what would otherwise seem to be a flight of imagination, you, there's good reason to begin to take it more seriously. But I, I'm sure you're aware of the work of uh, the philosopher Henri Corbin, who made the distinction between imaginary and imaginal. Yes, I am aware of his work, and I, you know, it's a it's a useful distinction on the one hand. On the other hand, imagination, just regular imagination, is an abandoned tool that we have abandoned and now think of as a toy. Uh, Imagination is not a toy. Imagination is a useful tool, and disciplined imagination is the the core, the primary tool of the magician. When you look at the Tarot of Marseille, and the fool is there with his his back, his bundle on his back, and then you look at the card of the magician. And there are all of the tools laid out because he, the fool has advanced into the journey of the path of the, of the tarot. That is to say, he has laid out his tools. One of those tools is a wand. That wand is the imagination. So I would think just as you are endeavoring to, to conjure up a new world in which the human race can be communicating with this whole uh, spectrum of, of other beings from a, let's call it a parallel dimension or a super sensible world. Uh, the same might be said of uh, many other people who are working with imagination, um, such as you and your other career as, as a writer of uh, fiction. Yeah, well, conjuring is, is one of the things that we're gradually coming to realize that it can be, a, it can be real. And uh, people who say that thoughts are things are, they're beginning to understand that this is quite true. Uh, you know, we're changing. We are beginning to dimensionalize the higher levels of consciousness within us and which we are within and doing it in a sense because the loudest voice of all, which is the voice of science and the media and so forth is saying, you are small, material fragments. You have a limited existence. You will, you're born, you live and you die and buy more cars and buy more hamburgers while you can. When the truth is very different and we're, we're going to be circling back all the way to the time before this history was even recorded, this time that we call history was even recorded, to find ourselves. And once we have understood how it could be that 36,000 people who lived in the British Isles during the time of the building of Stonehenge, that tiny number of people could spend 500 years building that monument, and once we have understood why it was that people built Gobekli Tepe and took a thousand years doing it, and then another thousand years to bury it, once we have recovered the mind that did that, which is the real 
human mind. We will link it up with all of our current knowledge, and we will, in effect, return to the forest. But this time, it will be the forest that we have had a share in making, because when nature become, comes to be rebalanced, it will be us. We have to do the work. And that work will be done by both body and spirit. Whitley, Strieber, what a magnificent conversation this has been. I'm so delighted to have reconnected with you. You have such a skill with asking questions. I have to tell you, Jeffrey, it's a delight to be with you. Well, let's do it more often. I, I was hoping we could arrange for you to come to Albuquerque, and I still hope that's possible. But uh, now we're on lockdown, and uh, perhaps we can take more advantage of uh, this uh, internet communication. I know that our viewers would be very happy to uh, have further conversations. Well, good. I'm looking forward to it already. Thank you so much, Whitley, for uh, sharing your spirit, uh, your soul, and, and your wisdom with me and with our viewers. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. And for those of you who have been watching this video, thank you for being with us. Thank you.